0: Today's conversation is one that I have been waiting for for a long time. The topic, the growing integration of psychedelics into society. I want to talk about how psychedelics are finding a space into spiritual and wellness uh, scene, a progressive consciousness culture, the often discussed healing effects of marijuana, mushrooms, and other psychedelics. And my guest is probably the expert on the topic, Ken Jordan started in 2007 a consciousness media network that was called Evolver and backed up by an online journal that was very, very successful, Reality Sandwich. And he was the editor for that until 2019. He used that platform to discuss way before it was accepted to discuss the link between psychedelics and consciousness. He's now the editorial director of Lucid News, which is a source of information that is honest and transparent about the various sides of the topics we're about to discuss. He also co-founded the Alchemist Kitchen, which is a bit of a love-hate relationship for me. It's a serene shop in New York City for botanical medicines, herbal remedies, and whole plant beauty products, and so on. Where when I lived in New York City, I had been forced by my girlfriend at the time to be at the Alchemist Kitchen all the time because she was a massive fan of that place. So I don't know really if to thank Ken for it or sort of complain a little bit. But I have to admit, I have to thank you so much, Ken, for being with me today because this is totally a topic I've been waiting to discuss for a long time.
1: Great to be with you. Thank you. And I apologize for any torture of being in the alchemist's kitchen might have inflicted upon you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So what you offered always worked. And I have to admit, there has been quite an awakening, especially in the wellness scene around the idea of plant medicine and and the whole idea of going back to nature. But there is also that controversial side to it. So because psychedelics and mushrooms and weed and marijuana and all of that is also plants. And I have to admit to you very, very openly, I have been encouraged by a lot of people. When I speak publicly, people walk to me after the event and they go like, please let me take you on an ayahuasca trip because I think it will change your life. And you might actually see things that would help you change the world. And I have no clue. I've never smoked marijuana. I don't even smoke smoke. I don't drink. I have never come across mushrooms other than the ones that you have on pizza So, I'm really not qualified for this topic. So, honestly, take me from the beginning. What is this all about?
1: Oh my God, from the beginning of psychedelics? (laughs) (laughs) Well, in ancient Sumer.
0: (laughs) No, no, not, not that far back. But it actually does go back that far, right?
1: There probably has never been a time in human history where plants that could open you to a more expanded awareness and a spiritual consciousness and a visionary state have not been a part of the human culture. We don't know of one. Every society has had this in one way or another. And, um, and you can still see, if you look at indigenous practices, there are sort of tribal people who have managed to stay outside of the influence of Western civilization over the last 150 years they are still. Essentially trying their best to maintain their traditional way of being in the jungle. They are deeply involved with these kinds of sacraments that come from the plants that open them to Visions that you know, frankly, it's part of their wellness regime Because the people who do this who have that kind of access who are trained to work with the plants in that way are the doctors okay, which we call shamans and The thing is that they're not trained only to, say, work with the most powerful substances like, say, ayahuasca or psychedelic mushrooms or whatever might be indigenous to that region. They learn about all of the plants. They learn about all of the medicinal qualities of the cornucopia that they are surrounded by. And they understand them as part of a wellness practice that can help people stay in their highest connection to their body and nature.
0: Which sounds highly expected for me, right? Where I come from in the Middle East, we didn't advance in Western medicine, you know, things in a pill as much myself growing up. If I caught a cold, there was a tea for that. If I felt a certain pain, there was a seed. It sounds very normal, but then what happened? Why did all of that disappear?
1: At a certain point, the Western culture tends to value Men in lab coats over grandma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at a certain point, you know, industry and studies, they would show that this pill is much more efficacious than taking that leaf, right? Mm. Um, or to be a little more cynical about it, nobody could own the leaf. Interesting. As to say, you know, listen, if it's a tea that's going to help you with your indigestion rather than a pill that's going to help you with the indigestion, who's getting paid for that, right? Yeah, There's no study. Yeah. Or relatively less, right? And we've developed a kind of medical regime in the West that is very pharmaceutically based. And as we know, certainly in the States, the over-prescription of pharmaceutical drugs is just going through the roof. I mean, not only the opioid pain medications, which has created a crisis, but officially sanctioned by the medical establishment and in fact endorsed by and pushed by the medical establishment for many, many years until they've had to deal with the consequences of
0: it. But then you, you have to expect then that there is a resistance, right? Because there is some some kind of a benefit, or at least let's say there is a focus, an investment that comes from big pharma, if you want, into trying to say, my stuff works. And by definition, as that results into saying, ah, maybe the other stuff doesn't. Maybe the the leaf is not as potent. Maybe they've done something to refine the leaf. And so the leaf sort of
1: disappears. Yeah, I mean, obviously, listen, I'm grateful for the benefits of Western medicine where these incredible advances have happened and people don't have polio anymore. And mm. there's a legion of those kinds of stories. And thank God for that. But that narrative sort of took over everything. Yeah. And there was a, a sense that anything that was not part of that regime was kind of pushed to the side. And honestly, people no longer have gardens where they grow these kinds of things for themselves. And the kind of just the same way that our diets have kind of devolved into mcdonald's and whatever plastic bread and god knows what yeah this is part of the whole thing was that disconnecting from nature yeah has been part of the western experience and that is one of the reasons we have an environmental crisis of the kind that we do today there's so many people no longer feel connected to nature in that visceral way and don't understand ourselves as part of nature or our bodies as an extension of nature so you end up with this idea of like well you know, the model is the body is a kind of car. It's like a mechanical thing. You drive it until it breaks. You figure out what part broke. You replace it with another part. You got a problem with your elbow, get you a new elbow. I mean, whatever that might be.
0: But isn't that also the same way where plant-based medicine is all about? I mean, I go to a Chinese doctor, he will prescribe or she will prescribe something based on me saying my neck hurts. Isn't that the
1: same way? My understanding of the traditional ways that plant medicines have been used is less that I got a problem, I gotta fix it, and more what does it mean for me to be in my full wellness? How do I maintain myself in a healthy state? I love that concept. So what's happening now, the sort of the whole herbal movement that Alchemist Kitchen is a part of, is less about how do I replace aspirin with a plant than what do I take as part of my diet that's going to be right for me? that keep me in my highest state of wellness.
0: So I don't ever need an aspirin, sort of.
1: Yeah, so you need them less, at least. Or, I mean, aspirin is probably a bad example, but you yeah, know, essentially I mean, yeah. you really want to reduce your potential for heart disease. You want to make sure that your stress level is lower so that you're actually less likely to get certain kinds of diseases. You want to take care of your circulation and you know, all kinds of basic things that keep your, essentially, inflammation low, your stress low, and keep you open to the higher vibrational things that are available to you around you in your life. Let's talk about that.
0: So, the idea of I can take a herb of some sort that keeps my blood circulation low is, I think, understood and accepted by most people, even the ones that sort of depend more on Western medicine. But the idea of, and I can get sort of high, you know, I can have mushrooms and I would have go into a trip that is. Can be likened to a hallucination, right? And there is value, spiritual value or consciousness value, or healing in that. that is a little on the edge, no?
1: It is for our society, but I was just the reason I mentioned it is because in the shamanic societies or all the traditional societies, that kind of distinction really wasn't so much in play. That's a contemporary way of understanding it. But what has happened is that people who have had profound experiences with the psychedelic plant medicines, like an ayahuasca. One of the things that happens in those situations is very common. I think there was a, seen a study that said 50% of people who've done ayahuasca have had this kind of message. So you feel like the plant kingdom is speaking to no, you. I heard that many times. <laughs> okay.
0: Mother ayahuasca, they say, was talking to me.
1: Right. This is similar, but not exactly the same. But yes, in the sense that you become... Intimately aware of a presence, of a consciousness, of an intelligence that's outside of yourself.
0: Is that what it is? Are plants actually talking to me? You must have experienced some of those things you talk about all the time. So is that really true? Is it the plant kingdom talking to me or am I imagining the plant kingdom talking
1: you? If your imagination is infinite and an expression of all of consciousness, if it is then talking to you, how could the plants not be talking to you? It really comes down to how do you see the self? In the West, we have this idea of ourselves as these kinds of isolated, essentially, brains in (laughs) mechanical bodies, Yes. right? That I am my mind, I am my brain, and my body takes me around places and does things and
0: takes my brain around places.
1: (laughs) I'm not even sure I have a heart. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Nothing else matters. So I have
1: some emotional stuff, but it gets in the way sometimes. I try to ignore it. (laughs) Yeah. I push through and I'm gonna get my IPO. But in fact, what happens is that the body is an extraordinarily sensitive receptor to all kinds of stimuli outside of us, including emotional stuff. And often the body knows emotionally what's happening to us before our brains, our minds do. Totally. But just to say that our understanding of what consciousness is and what isn't isn't me is still an open question. When I am in a ceremony and I have a sense of an intelligence that is coming towards me, introducing me to something that I honestly am not aware of or was not aware of before. It is a big open question about what that is. But many, many people report this.
0: And it's similar.
1: Similar enough so that you know there's a category of experience that's covered by this. And one of the things that many people come away from these ayahuasca experiences, for instance, intimately connected to is a sense of an intelligence that is in nature, that the plants in nature do have a, have an intelligence in the voice, that they're not just dumb. Right? And are we are going to ask them to write a book about how to drive a car? No. I mean, it's not as if they've got a certain kind of intelligence the way we have a certain kind of intelligence, but there is an intention and an awareness and a sensitivity. And I've had experiences where I come away from that encounter thinking, they're a lot smarter than we are. They know a lot more about what's going on than we do. (laughs) And they're also a lot more patient, and they have a much bigger, longer perspective. And frankly, they're quite charitable and willing to forgive us stupid monkeys who are messing things up so badly. Because they're like, you guys may stick around, you may be gone, we'll be around.
0: Yeah, that's such a beautiful way of looking at it. It's like, yeah, we'll be patient with you, with your kind of behavior. You're probably going to be out of the game sometime soon but trees we're, we're, we're just going to be here to watch the next monkey sort of
1: all i can say is that that takeaway is not an uncommon one now if you're going to tell me that that's a verifiable fact-based thing that everybody can you know, i don't know but this just it, it happens this is all a long way of saying that people who are having these kinds of encounters with plants through ayahuasca are now becoming more interested in all these traditional plant remedies and that's how The Alchemist's Kitchen really got started. It was by people who were coming from that perspective. But it's part of a much larger thing that's happening with psychedelics right now, which I'm fascinated by, and which is why we start with Lucid News, the website you mentioned before, which is a, essentially, it's a breaking news journalism platform about what's happening in psychedelics. Because so much is happening in psychedelics right now.
0: Totally. So now there is clearly an acceptance around the world for some kinds of herbal interventions, or I don't want to call it medicine, but experiences that we didn't accept before. Marijuana is legalized in so many places around the world. And while I was growing up, the police was fighting it tooth and nail. And it was really more illegal than alcohol, which I never found understandable. Not that you've done either. My dad gave me a glass of wine at age 11. Okay. Clever, clever man, because I hated it. I really disliked that thing. And then, you know, I was quite athletic. I know I don't look it now, but I was quite athletic until my 30s. And then that's it. By 30, I had seen enough of my friends drinking that I was like, nah, not for me. So that's why. But I will tell you openly, my daughter speaks to me. So my daughter lives in Montreal and she speaks to me quite extensively about marijuana specifically. So she had a case of epilepsy as a young child. And of course, Western medicine prescribed something to her that was really, really, I mean, more harmful than useful, if you ask me. And then through marijuana, which was legal in Montreal when she went to university, she recovered completely. I have to say, I'm quite grateful that she had the strength in her to bypass me. I mean, I never objected. I love the fact that she took charge of her life. But in a way, she was basically saying it's like people smoke tobacco and some other people smoke marijuana and marijuana will have a different impact on you.
1: And you never shared a chocolate with her.
0: I wanted. So the promise I'm making in public in front of everyone, she said, you are never going to touch that stuff unless you're with me. So your first time has to be like me giving you back, sort of. Having said that, I hope she doesn't get angry at me for having shared our intimate story. But uh, the truth is, I believe in the value of that. I have to say, however, I don't believe in the spiritual side. Allow me to say what goes on in my mind and correct me for my ignorance. I understand that certain brain conditions, you know, if you have a certain something, you may see light. Something will affect your optical nerve in a way and your brain will sense light that doesn't exist right? If you switch off parts of your left brain, you may feel uh, there was that amazing TED talk by Jill Bolte Taylor, you know, about how a stroke affected her left side of the brain and she could feel that she was one with the world. So it seems to me like those plant-based experiences are simply reconfiguring our brains in ways that make us have those experiences. What's spiritual about this?
1: Do you have a meditation
0: practice? I do. I do. But it's not the typical meditation. I meditate slightly different than saying Om. But yes, I do.
1: Putting the actual mechanisms you use aside, right? Mm. Do you find that it shifts your, your way of thinking? Absolutely. And makes you more sensitive to stuff? Totally. Makes you notice things you had noticed before? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. That's the power of psychedelics. Okay. Very similar.
0: So it's externally induced meditation, it reconfigures your brain?
1: There's no question that, that meditation reconfigures your brain. I mean, there's all of this tremendous amount of science now that shows this. What's interesting is that the research into psychedelic states, that when, you're on, when you take a psychedelic, it mirrors the effects of meditation in the brain very directly. It's an extremely similar kind of effect, right? And the same parts of the brain get turned on or turned off or whatever. I'm not a neurologist, so I'm a neuroscientist so I can't really get into the details of that. But what you do see is a mapping of psychedelic states and meditative states, almost the same. They both work to quiet the default mode network. From a physiological perspective, we understand something of this. The way that I would flip what you said, though, is that, yes, something is happening mechanically in the brain or in the body as a result of your psychedelic experience or your meditation, that certainly is consistent with the effect that you experience. What I have found through my meditation as well as my psychedelic experiences is that it's not clear which comes first. Is it the physiological thing that enables the consciousness shift, or is it a consciousness thing that is supported by the physiology? That is, just because the radio is playing certain music.
0: Doesn't mean the rest of the
1: music doesn't mean that the music is coming from inside the radio, right? That it's picking up something that's outside and it's giving it a physiological expression. My sense is that we're at the very beginning of exploring what this is about. We barely understand any of this. We're just starting to map the physiology at the same time that people are just starting to really speak publicly and share their experiences with meditation and with psychedelics and with other things that are similar in terms of shifting consciousness or altered states. And that there's a whole vocabulary now that's being developed that's just in its infancy so we can have a meaningful conversation about what this stuff really is all about. The power of psychedelics is that they can get you into places quickly that can happen through meditation over many years or even decades.
0: They don't keep you there. Wouldn't you agree, Ken? So a lot of the people that would have one of those experiences would have to go back again and again and again, while if you develop that over time, it's sort of your neuroplasticity reconfigures your brain so that this becomes a second nature to you.
1: The famous quote that meditators have used over the years Mm -hmm. is, I took psychedelics, I had an experience, but once you get the message, you can hang up the phone. You don't need to go back to psychedelics Again and again and again, you can learn through meditation how to get there, right? Honestly, that has not been my experience. Yeah. My experience with ayahuasca in particular had such a tremendous impact on my ability to see things differently that it changed everything for me. And it opened up possibilities for me. And it continued to over many years of working with the plant medicines, that there was no end to, to that. And it was an extraordinary opening. That happened for me. It is a continual growth process that the more you learn how to work with the medicines in a healthy and constructive way, the more stuff opens up. In similar to a meditation practice that can be guided and developed in relationship to your guidance from a master. Tell us
0: more. Tell me the most eye-opening insights you got in a trip and maybe the most fun you've ever had.
1: Oh my God. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, well, you start with the fact that this stuff is ineffable and you can't, have, like I'm asking you, like what's the most amazing meditation experience you ever had? And I'm like, okay, now can you really tell me? It's hard. I've had many experiences with psychedelics that were profound and life-changing. For me personally, I prefer being in a ceremonial context than in I don't like to take something and go to a party. Yeah, it doesn't work for me anymore. used to be okay, but now I'm kind of like over that. I have felt as if the mystery of life, there's a veil. And then moments would happen during a psychedelic experience where I felt that veil would part and I could see through to another side, things I hadn't realized were there. And then I found that working with the plant medicine in a certain way, being a student essentially of it, I would learn how to become acculturated to the new awareness okay to integrate that mm-hmm. and once that was fully integrated i would have another experience with plant medicine months or a year later or something and it would happen again and then it would happen again and part of that was also those experiences was and here's how you take it back here's how you integrate it into a meditation practice and i would get downloads effectively about how to meditate in order to retain that awareness in daily life. That was my experience. I know that's not everybody's experience, but I think the thing about these, about psychedelics or about meditation or about any of these sort of consciousness practices, and there's a number of them that are developing that are neither, and some of them are technology-based, is that everybody's different and you're going to find the thing that works for you and some things are not going to work for you. I, for instance, and you're saying people coming up to you saying you should take ayahuasca, you should take ayahuasca. I have never told anybody they should take ayahuasca. I don't do that because if ayahuasca really wants you to take it, it'll let you know. Interesting.
0: (laughs) Now this is seriously that ayahuasca is intelligent.
1: I am convinced from my own engagement with this work, and it's really work if you do it right, is that there's a intentionality behind it, which is quite beautiful and benign. At base, it's light. It's a lot of light. And it works with you if you're receptive to it and if you're interested in it. And it's not without certain things you got to be careful about. And some people have really not great experiences. And certainly I've helped a lot of people in situations where it wasn't working well for them. And you got to be ready for that. It can bring up some really dark shadow material and you got to be ready to deal with it and engage with it. That's part of the process too. But it can be ultimately so powerful and life-affirming when you do. Now, what's happening in terms of the movement around psychedelics, this happening globally, you know, in the States it's happening, but also in other parts of the world, is the creation of a context for taking psychedelics that helps people to hold their experience in a more familiar kind of medical environment where therapists will work with people using psychedelics as part of a therapeutic process. Yeah,
0: the modern shamans, sort of.
1: They become shamans, sort of, yes, but they're usually not trained in shamanic techniques, they're trained in psychotherapy techniques. Exactly, which
0: are very, very different, and accordingly, the result could be drastically different.
1: There are not enough attention has been given to like those differences, but I know a lot of people have had incredibly powerful and valuable experiences working in that therapeutic way.
0: Let me jump into this for a second, Ken. So, Let's differentiate two things. There is the idea of, as you rightly said, I'll take LSD or MDMA or whatever and go to a party, which really is not what you're talking about here. You're talking about a a sort of a practice that allows you to actually get into an experience that benefits you, makes you a better person. Now, in those experiences, you talk about consciousness, but you don't talk about spirituality because there is that mix of the shaman being sort of a religious leader or a spiritual leader, if you want, and the medicine itself and the plant itself allowing you a consciousness opening or widening experience. Did I get that correctly?
1: I find it hard to separate out the spirituality from the consciousness.
0: What is spirituality? How do you define
1: spirituality? I would say that spirituality for me, and I'm going to tell talk totally subjectively, right, is a, a sense of connecting to something outside of yourself that's real.
0: Correct, beyond the physical.
1: Beyond the physical. And many people experience that through a sense of oneness. But there's also, I think in the more shamanic lineages, a sense of many different kinds of energetic or spiritual beings that are available, that influence how we see ourselves and how we see others and how we connect to each other. And that's a big thing to talk about you know, start to dive into that. But what's interesting is how many people who've taken psychedelics have come away with that kind of visceral understanding of what it is to be connected to the spiritual.
0: That has nothing to do with like a divine entity or a religious experience, or I don't have to like...
1: Oh, I think it's the exact same thing. You do? Depends on how you want to call it. And I say spiritual beings that are outside of your body or outside of your own sense of awareness. That can be very high vibrational, angelic, entities. Some people want to call something God. It's not my word, but people, some people use that word. And then there are also other kinds of more not necessarily savory characters that are, that are also part of what it is to be in existence, right? And we all work with elements of that too, our shadow, people call it shadow aspect of, of our lives. So to me, that's what it is. Now, not everybody who has a psychedelic experience has that. That's okay. I mean, it's not like you're passing a test. I think Michael Pollan when he wrote his book, How to Change Your Mind, which is a really, I think, valuable book about psychedelics and their integration into mainstream society through a medical paradigm, really. Mm-hmm. He does he has a number of psychedelic experiences he writes about in the book. He never had what he calls a mystical experience or religious experience. Didn't happen for him. And that's okay. It's not like you, you got to have one. But those people who have had them go, whoa, that was some. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let's jump into that medical bit for a second before we try to wrap a view around this. Every person I have met that had that experience, like you mentioned, again, I have to admit that's one of the things that turns me off around the idea of exploring this is how people use it uninformed if you want. There is that massive scene when I was in New York City around sort of fashionable. This is the fashionable thing to do is to go on trips and you know, this is the new spiritual thing and I will wear white fluffy dresses and at the same time have those experiences and and really it switches you off because basically that's not really the spiritual community that you think is actually ascending, is actually learning and developing and finding
1: something. There's a famous term by uh, Trungpa about spiritual materialism, which you may or may not be. Yeah. Okay. But It's this idea that, listen, if I wear it right, I'm it, right? Yeah. And then if I'm so high vibrational and I'm so enlightened, well, you know, <laughs> So, <laughs> exactly. yeah, I mean, listen, we all have to deal with that aspect of the community and every scene is going to have an element
0: of that. And it's not unusual. I mean, when you really go back to the 60s and how the idea of psychedelics in the 60s were still not less spoken about than they are today in certain communities. But again, that community mixed everything. It became a movement that was not really about psychedelics, but it was really a little more enriched, if you want, by psychedelics. My question, though, is everyone that's done this in a well-designed, well-intended, spiritual way, if you want, reached something. And they all tell me what, exactly what you tell me. It's like it's so eye-opening. It's almost like I can understand for the first time. Are there any studies, is there any records that the Western scientific method can rely on that actually back this up at all?
1: Well, you know, it's been a taboo subject to study. Yeah, true. All these years. And it was a great way, if you want to pursue it as an academic, it was a great way to not get tenure. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, uh, there are however now beginning to be some studies. And you're based in London, right? Because some of the stuff is happening there. Uh, Imperial College London has been doing some things and people who are involved with that. And in fact, on Lucid News, on our website, in the last couple of weeks, we've run a few stories about some of these studies that are remarkably shedding light on this kind of mystical, profound experience. One, it was a study that's essentially a review of the psychedelic literature in the science world for the last whatever and this goes back to the 1950s looking specifically for references to mystical experiences right also which includes paranormal experiences psi phenomenon experiences oh you know ah telepathy noticing things that you didn't notice before like in sort of interesting ways alien connections connections to entities all of this stuff it's funny just how prevalent it is yeah right and beginning to see just how many people really consistently had these kinds of experiences. And the important thing to remember is that these experiences don't only happen with psychedelics.
0: Yeah, yeah, I have it with my Oculus Quest, you know, on VR all the time. (laughs)
1: That's one way to get (laughs) there. But it's also all of the old yoga books. Yeah. And if you really look at the history of yoga and meditation, you see that they get two similar states, the same states. It comes up. This is something that's part, somehow or another, of the human experience and it's part of the spiritual experience for many, many people. But it's been essentially not examined from a scientific perspective until we're just now, really, in some ways, giving that attention. But it plays a role in our understanding of how psychedelics work in a therapeutic context, because if people having these experiences and they're in a therapeutic process with a therapist, the therapist can start to understand what those might mean and how those can sort of help open you up. And what Michael Pollan writes about in his book is that when people have mystical experiences, the efficacy of the therapy is far, far greater, much more likely to get over your depression, your anxiety, persistent anxiety, addiction, all of the things that psychedelics can be used for Now, in therapy, the groundbreaking work that's being done for the first major shift in development in medicines to address mental illness since the 90s, since the SSRIs came up in the 90s, there's been almost no forward movement in medications to address mental illness until the psychedelic work started to really break through in the last few years. And that's, again, lucid news, we we do our best to cover that.
0: But then as you started the conversation, this is not about illness. This is about a lifestyle that allows you to avoid that illness. So do you think there will be a time in your lifetime and mine where psychedelics are included in your daily routine or weekly or monthly routine, just like going to church or having uh, some turmeric to reduce your inflammations? Do you think that will be the case?
1: I think what's happening right now is a shift in our understanding of what psychedelics are from this notion that you take a psychedelic and it booms you out for 12 hours and then somehow you are tethered to the ground by somebody nearby who then pulls you back to earth after you're done and hopefully you're still able to walk and talk. You've had this incredible blowout mystical experience that's changed your life to the sense that there are many different ways of working with psychedelics from microdosing, which is sub-perceptual. You're not even aware. Yeah of a tiny amount of psychedelic, but it has a profound effect on your physiology and your mental state, to different, much more measured ways of working with psychedelics in a therapeutic context that open you up enough so that you have an important experience, but don't necessarily shoot you out of a cannon, to these more full-on kind of experiences of a more shamanic type. This is now being integrated into our society in many different ways. There's a legalization movement in the United States. You've, already, you've had this in the Netherlands for a long time, but yeah. now in Denver and in Oakland and in Santa Cruz, magic mushrooms have been decriminalized. And there'll be ballot initiatives in the fall, in Oregon and probably in Washington, D.C. that will also further the decriminalization, but also create legal frameworks for the medical use of psychedelics for psilocybin. Yeah in a therapeutic context. And this is all based on the science. That's, and there have been companies that are being founded. I think $400 million have been invested yeah, yeah, yeah. in the last short amount of time.
0: You could see that the legalization of marijuana has led billions of dollars of investment into that field. And you can see that the trend would continue if you want. It is uh, an interesting world. I think the eye-opening statement for me remains to be this is part of the human experience. It's not an alien that's introduced to the human experience. It's maybe us that have not included that in our lives in the past, and that might have been the mistake. I don't know. I don't know if I'll go now back to my Oculus virtual reality world or take a trip to Amsterdam, but I definitely <laughs> <laughs> definitely, am so grateful for your knowledge and your time and your openness to talk about a topic that I think is completely under, like many other topics that are beneficial for us in many ways, and maybe not beneficial in other ways, has been undercover, has been refused to be discussed. And I think the conversation is really what matters. It's not the final knowledge of what works and what doesn't. I think your experience definitely, as you said, may have worked for you and many other people have had experiences that worked for them. Others may not have, but I think it's the conversation to maybe research and understand more so that it is part of our human experience, as you said.
1: This is how we're rolling with it. And I got to say, it's an extraordinary and fascinating time to be interested in this stuff.
0: So for those listening to us, if you want to learn more about the topic, I definitely will be hanging up with Ken right now and then going to lucid.news. I think it's an interesting topic to research. Ken, I'm really, really grateful for your time and for all of your enthusiasm about a topic that needs to be discussed. So thank you for being here.
1: Well, thank you so much, Mo. I really appreciate this. This is a lovely conversation. It really was for me too. Thank you.
0: And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for MoGaudat, Slowmo, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.